Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy, your host, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry campus, WEHC 90.7. I'm very pleased today. I'm actually on the road. I'm at Quail Ridge Bookstore, and we're listening to Pat Conroy. He gave a presentation there, and some of you may have heard my interview with Nancy Olson. Nancy is the owner of Quail Ridge Bookstore. She is from originally from Southwest Virginia, and did you know this? Her father went to Emory & Henry. It's a well-known bookstore. It's internationally known. It's a bookstore where everyone wants to come and read and be seen. So Pat Conroy, I was able and allowed to have a front row seat and record him. He is very funny. If you know anything about Pat Conroy, and many of you do, he's there to talk about his new book, My Reading Life. And, you know, he wrote The Great Santini, Prince of Tides, and many others. But this, he is really funny in his presentation, but it also has a great deal of insight. Now, I had played the first part of this before for you, so you've heard the first part of the presentation. The last part is we go into where he's talking to his publisher. He has just found an agent. They have agreed to publish him. And so we're going to go... Richard Graves is a great producer here. We're going to go live to Quail Ridge Bookstore and listen to Pet Conroy. You're really going to enjoy him, and then we're going to close the program out today with some Guy Clark. So this is Henry McCarthy, your host of WEHC 90.7. Send me a few poems, as we like to say on this program. We write poems every day in our hearts, but we're often afraid to share them. Now let's go directly to Pet Conroy. You're really going to enjoy this. <laughs> Julian changed my life when he said, my God, they're not even beautiful. He says, Pat, you do understand it is they who pay you, not the opposite. When I finally saw Julian Bach you know, for the first time, and oh my, and you know, I thought I was sophisticated and I was, but, you know, Julian thought otherwise. And he told me on the phone, Pat, I have a great surprise for you. I said, what's that, Mr. Bach? And he said, tonight, my wife and I are taking you to the opera. <laughs> have you ever heard that word, the opera? And I go, the opera? <laughs> I think this guy thinks I'm an idiot. And he said, it's a play sung in a foreign language. <laughs> so I entered the world of New York publishing. Uh, not at my best, but I had entered at least at last. I went to Texas last week. And someone asked me about the first time I'd been to Texas signing my books. And at this time, it was one of those situations where the first books didn't sell much. You know, they just, you know, did not sell very much. Later they sold more when movies were made out of them. But, you know, right at first, uh, there were not any sales, and they kept waiting for this maddening breakout book. And I went down to Dallas, Texas, and had a new theory. They always have theories in publishing. And their theory then was, and I love this theory, if we put Conroy next to famous writers, there will be people so embarrassed that nobody is buying his books that they will drift over from the lines of the famous people to actually purchase one or two of his books. So I sat there in my head, right beside me, 
there was Irving Stone. <laughs> and Irving was, you know, you sign him, I got. And right to my right, there was, what was that woman's name? I will think of this woman's name. Here's what it is. She told me later that she was the fifth best-selling writer on earth. And I will, who is that? Y'all need to help me out, but none of y'all would admit you've read her books. Danielle Steele? She West, she Western girl. Okay, this is, this is getting old. I can't believe it. I don't remember this one. But anyway, I will, you know, you know, possibly I'll remember this in the town. Well, we started signing. I think I was with the Lords of Discipline. And if I had shot a pistol, in front of my desk, I would not have harmed a single <laughs> So I finally get, and I look over, and Irving Stone is, he's, you know, he's going, and he, he's not looking up. He's so busy signing books, and his books are this big. They're like the new Mark Twain autobiography. They're huge. And he's gone, he's signing so much, and finally I got up to help him. <laughs> I took a box cutter, I'm opening up, I'm slamming him down. He's going through it, he's going through it, I'm slamming him down. And he looks over, he notices that I'm helping him. And he feels not only pity, but probably a father-like, you know, thing for this loser that's not selling a book. So Irving says to me, would you like to know the secret of my success, Bill? <laughs> I said, it looks like I could use the secret of your success, Irving. And so I'd love to have it. I'm stacked. He's sweating. He's signing something, but working so hard. And I think his book was Origin that year, about Darwin. And so he is doing Origin. And he said, Bill, ever since I published my first book, Lust for Life, when I was 19 years old, it has soared to the bestseller list, number one on the New York Times. Every single book I write, one a year, for the last 30 years. Here is the secret of my success, Bill. I only write about the human spirit. So I said, you know, I'll give that a shot next time. <laughs> It sounds like a good plan, and I don't know. I don't try to hook that human spirit in my own books to the thing. Okay, then I got the romance novel. What? I can't get. It. I, you know, I know I won't get this, but here's here's what she looked like. Okay, it was a. She was. She looked like she was from Arizona. Okay, and long black tresses. <laughs> and long black dresses, and then she had on, you know, boots made from extinct lizards. <laughs> and, you know, one of those fabulous belts that Texas loved to wear. And she had a vest, you know, made out of antelope pie. <laughs> and, you know, southwestern jewelry. And, you know, it was a slinky, sexy girl. And she comes over with carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> and she has signed so many books that you know, she's simply broken down. Her body is breaking down. <laughs> and she looks at me with pity in her eyes. And she was so southwestern looking, I could not help but note a sprig of cilantro in her hair. <laughs> and she looks at me and she says, 
Had I read your book, The Lords of Discipline, last night, I know what's wrong with your career. And I said, thanks so much. I now know what's wrong with my career, too. She said, what's that? I said, I'm not writing about the human spirit. She says, human spirit ain't got nothing to do with it. I said, what are you talking about? She said, ain't the human spirit. I read your book. It's 500 pages long. And there is not one bit of sex in your entire book. And she said, can you explain why? And I said, yes, I can. And she said, what is it? And I said, my grandmother's still alive. And she says, well, so what? Don't you have any better reason than us? Yes, there's another reason. And then she goes and says, in my latest book, people start having passionate, acrobatic, phenomenal, creative sex from page three. And every third page for the next 600 pages, they're doing it some unique, involved, unbelievably graphic way. And I said, I cannot do that. And she said, explain why again. I said, I'm Southern. And she says, so what? What does that have to do with anything? I said, I only know two or three ways. career drifted on. I went to Miami that year and I was speaking with a young writer, also a pretty girl, named Anne Rice. And so, you know, Anne was, you know, making her way and, uh, and she, was, she was something. She was exotic and, you know, she was, you know, this, and, and she didn't mention no human spirit either. Now that, now that I think about it, there's no human spirit involved. And what Ann told me that week. And, uh, but I loved her. So we went to the first, I think, first Miami Book Fair, a tiny affair. It is now huge and fabulous, but it was a tiny thing then. Like my, my speech teacher in the Citadel, Pat, look everybody in the eye. <laughs> I've been trying to wheel around, catching all of you. But we went out, and there was a darkened theater that we were speaking in. And a pretty large crowd for me. I mean, it was, you know, it was pretty big. And I was speaking first. So I go out and I'm having trouble seeing. I peered out in the audience and the audience is peering back at me. <laughs> so I walked back to where Ann Rice is sitting and I said, Ann, there's something wrong with this audience. <laughs> and she said, what's wrong with them, Pat? I said, they, they're in bad need of dental hygiene. There's something wrong with their teeth. She said, they're not teeth, Pat. They're fangs. So they are my fans, not yours.
<laughs> so I go back, I look, and there's about 250 guys with their little teeth sticking out and their capes on. And but that is what I have liked about the literary life. It has brought me into contact uh, with this kind of thing. My mother, now this is Kitty's friend again. And my mother is the first chapter of this new book. And she taught me how to love reading, and I loved it passionately. One of the things I loved about Kitty Mancini, she loved it as much as I did. She doesn't remember this, but she let me borrow Papa Hemingway by H.E. Hotchner. Uh, let me read that. I was in the seventh grade <clears throat> when I met A.E. Hotchner later in my career. I told him about Kitty Mancini and how I got this book when I was still in school, in elementary school. But I'm writing about my father's change after the great Santini came out. And I'm having to go back and study my own family, and I have been stunned by what I have found. You know, or, you know, I, I'm always criticized for exaggerating. I am a shy minimalist lady. <laughs> I found out my grandmother, who I didn't want to write sex, I found this grandmother. She was married eight times <laughs> that we know of. I keep discovering new marriages, new, you know, I can't believe this. Uh, I come from the lowest, dirt poor, cracker family I have ever read about. <laughs> Erskine Cole, though, looks like a step up. <laughs> but I've been writing about this, and my mother keeps looming into view. And I remember my mother, uh, when she was dying of leukemia, and it's, it's agonizing, you know, you know, a lot of you all have been to this, the death of your mother, and, you know, this, I said, you know, why can't dad die, mom? Okay, what, what is this? <laughs> what is this all about? You know, this, this ain't fair, okay? But I remember the last time I took my mother out of the hospital, and it's a time you know it's the last time. And by this time, I was a veteran of taking care of my mother in chemotherapy, because my other brothers and sisters are Pat, you gotta take care of mom. You don't have a job. You're right. <laughs> so I'd go and I'd spend time with mom in the hospital. It was awful, awful. But the last time I took her out, we developed a ritual that I loved. And this ritual was like this. I would take her, she couldn't eat for about a week when we got home. You know, she was just the chemotherapy was too violent. But I'd take her to a fancy restaurant in South Carolina. And I'd buy her everything, expensive. I'd buy her escargot. This is, I would buy her, you know, foie gras. I'd buy her, mom couldn't eat a bit of it, but she loved me buying. I'd buy her a hundred dollar bottle of champagne. And we did this. Now, we were doing this this last time. The last time we would participate in this particular ritual. And my mother made my mother made great social mistakes that you read about in a new novel. She was a redneck girl who could not quite admit it. So what she did that was seems sensible to me now. She simply lied about it. She tried to join an intellectual women's club in South Carolina, but they required that you have a college degree. 
Mom said she graduated magna cum laude from Agnes Scott. Mom thought it was unfair and unsportsmanlike that they actually checked the records. <laughs> they found out they couldn't even prove that she had passed the campus on foot. So mom, of course, was rejected. And you know, I say this not to say anything about that club. That was their rule. You know, that's, that was, I, I tried to explain to mom, don't, it, don't do that to yourself. So anyway, this club has a meeting in that same restaurant on this particular day. They all file in, and Kitty, this broke my heart. They filed in, and none of them would speak to my mother. And they came by, and one by one, they came by and snubbed her. Now, they snubbed me too, but there's reasons in Buford to snub me. And I give anybody that privilege, that is, you know, I give them that. So anyway, we get out of the car, I pay for it, and my mother begins crying hysterically. And my mother could really put it on. Ah, ah, tears flying to, ah, ah, so I'm driving, I'm miserable. You know, I know my mother wouldn't be alive in a couple of weeks, she died in a couple of weeks, but she is crying as hard as I've ever seen her cry. And I'm trying to think of something to make her feel good. So I said, Mom, would you like me to drive back to that restaurant and throw every single one of those women through a plate glass window? <laughs> and my mother looks at me, still crying, and she says, you're just like your father, <laughs> a beast. <laughs> and I said, yes, Mom, there is that part of me. And by the way, I want to thank you for this great DNA <laughs> shooting through my body at my birth. But yes, she cried. She said, oh, oh. and it was killing me. And finally, I said, Mama, do you know there's women back there in that restaurant? Yes. I'm writing about them in the new book, The Prince of Tides. My mother stops crying. She looks over and she said, did you get them? I said, I got the living hell out of them. She said, well, they know who they are. I said, tour guides going down the street will point them out. And my mother said to me, son, you're just like me. <laughs> Let me finish with this. I, the thing about writing about my father is proving very moving to me. I've learned things about him. And let me also tell you, he was the worst father I have ever seen in my life, bar none. I love Don Mancini the wife of the great Kitty, more than I love my father. And I'm grateful to him to this day for being so nice to me as a boy. I'm grateful to anyone who was nice to me as a boy. Dad never was. And I regret that and I'll carry that. You know, it's a marking with me. But in writing this book, when Dad died, when he started dying, I interviewed my father. And Dad was, you know, he, he got into it. And by the third day of the interview, he said, son, I know what you're doing. You're writing about me, right? 
He said, you know, your career has gone downhill since the great Santini. You lost your best subject. And you shouldn't have killed me in the end because it screwed up the sequel. Hollywood did me one favor when they were making the great Santini. Dad was worried. He said, John Wayne is dead, son. Only he could have gotten my virility across to the American people. Hollywood did me this favor. They sent out a telegram. Dear Colonel Conroy, we've chosen the actor to play you. He's coming to Atlanta to study your facial gestures, your gestures, your facial movements, the way you talk. His name is Truman Capote. <laughs> so his dad is dying. He says, okay, you're taking advantage of your old man again. I, you know, I've gotten used to that. You're brutalizing your family once more, son. You know, you must disloyal son in the history of the world. Everybody knows it. And he said, any movie interest? <laughs> I said, yeah, they want to have an auction, Dad. He said, big bucks? I said, Dad, millions. <laughs> Who do they want to play? The great city. He said, this guy ought to be polishing off his Oscar speech. They don't make men of my metal anymore. And these fruitcakes of Hollywood would be scratching at the door to play a man like me. So I said, usual suspects, Hoffman, Newman, Redford. He said, I'm tired of midgets playing me, son. <laughs> so his dad is going, I'm, I can tell dad is into the whole thing because he thinks it's being recorded for Hollywood, for literature, for everything. Oh, that was Pat Conroy. Thank you for listening. Some great advice about writing, and he's an inspiration to all of us because he didn't take the route, so to speak, of reading a book or going to a workshop. Pat's just who he is. Richard Graves, thank you again so much. This is Henry McCarthy saying, I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Do not wait up for me. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Let's hear a little bit of Guy Clark. I think that uh, this is very appropriate to hear from Guy Clark today. He's a poet and writer and singer. Now William Butler Yates and Jeans got up to play guitar and sing in some joint in Mission Beach last night. And at the door sat Tom Waits in a pork pie hat and silver skates and he's juggling three collection plates. Jesus Christ. Towns Van Zant standing at the bar skinning a Hollywood movie star and he can't remember where he parked his car or to whom he lost the keys. Uh, but he's full of angst and hillbilly haiku. What's a poor Fort Worth boy to do? Go on, rhyme something for a man. Show him how you really feel. There ain't no money in poetry. That's what sets a poet free. I've had all the freedom I can stand. Got your cold dog soup and rainbow pie All it takes to get me by Fool my belly till the day I die Cold dog soup and rainbow pie
Ginsburg and Kerouac Shooting dice, playing rambling jacks Guitar with a cowboy painting pick guard on it And they sat in the back and they drank for free And they rhymed orange with Rosalie Now there's a pride of lines to draw to Oh, there ain't no money in poetry That's what sets the poet free And I've had all the freedom I can stand And cold dog soup and rainbow pie All it takes to get me by Fool my belly till the day I die Cold dog soup and rainbow pie There ain't no money in poetry That's what sets the poet free And I've had all the freedom I can stand Cold dog soup and rainbow pie All it takes to get me by Fool my belly till the day I die Cold dog soup and rainbow pie That's a thin slice of life It's salty and hard It is stern as a knife Where the wind is for blowing up Hurricanes for showing Snakes how to swim And the trees how to lean And the shrimpers and their ladies Rowed in the beer joints Drinking them down For they sail with the dawn They're bound for the Mexican Bay of Campeche And the deckhands are singing Adios, Jolie Blonde Well, in the cars of my youth How I tore through those sand dunes And cut up my tires on them oyster shell roads Ah, but nothing is forever Say the old men in the shipyards Turning trees into shrimp boats Hell, I guess they ought to know And the shrimpers and the ladies out in the beer junk Drinking them down for they sail with the dawn Bound for the Mexican Bay of Campeche The death hands are singing Blonde. 
snowbirds in search of that sunshine and nightlight Fond of greasing palms down the beach as they're going All this living on the edge of the waters of the world Demands the dignity of whooping cranes and the likes of Gilbert Rowland <laughs> 